Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. If you haven't already done so, please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination. It is so much appreciated. And there are some wonderful things that people who are supporters of the show receive. They get bi-weekly special bonus episodes and merchandise. And so please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination. And for as much as you want, or as little as $2 a month, you can become a supporter of the show. Mike Rinder was raised as a Scientologist from the age of five when his parents began attending the Scientology International Center in Australia in the early 1960s. He eventually went on to serve as Scientology's international spokesperson. Mike was the head of OSA, Scientology's Office of Special Affairs, and was a member of the board of directors of the Church of Scientology International. Since denouncing Scientology, Mike has become a prominent whistleblower against its abuses. He appeared in the HBO documentary Going Clear and co-hosted all three seasons of Leah Remini's Emmy award-winning show, Scientology and the Aftermath. He and Remini also co-host the podcast Scientology Fair Game. His excellent new memoir, A Billion Years, My Escape from a Life in the Highest Ranks of Scientology, is available now. It is a treat to talk to Mike. And we've known each other a long time and our paths have crossed throughout our our lives. And it's really nice to see him in this new incarnation, so to speak, of his life where he gets to truly enjoy it and be happy. I am really happy that he was able to join me on this show and he would like to be able to come back at some point in the not-too-distant future. So this is just the beginning of our conversation. Here's Mike Rinder now. I am very happy to have Mike Rinder on the show today. Mike, it's so nice to see you again. You too, Rachel. I am thrilled to be here. This is one of the podcasts I was looking forward to doing. You know, I know you're so familiar with the subject, and I've been doing a lot of media about the book, and I tend to get asked like the same questions by people that don't really understand anything about the subject of Scientology, and it becomes a little tiresome to have to explain the same thing over and over and over. It's certainly nice to talk to someone who I know understands what it is that I'm talking about. (laughs) I'm so glad. Right. I know I've heard a lot of your interviews, and you very patiently will explain things, and, and it's good for the public. It really is not familiar, and it's it's going to blow their mind to hear that there is this thing called the Sea Org. What is that? Um, because it really is so out there for the general population, which I'm sure you've seen time and time again. Yes, I have seen that. <laughs> yes, right, right. So, yeah, so I'm familiar with the lexicon, and uh, you know, and so we can kind of hit the ground running. And it it is. So good that you came out with this book. I've been devouring it. 
It's wonderful. And it's so interesting to see your fresh face, this hopeful young face, you know, on the cover where you can just see that you felt strong and confident and purposeful. And, and it's an interesting thing, I'm sure, for you to look back on that countenance on the cover. Yes, it is. You know, when Simon and Schuster said, well, do you have any photos of yourself? I said, I only have one. Like, I do not have any photos of my children, any photos of my time when I was in Scientology, nothing. They didn't send me any of them. But a friend of mine, in fact, he's mentioned in the book, Jim Dinkelsey, took that photograph of me when we were in Madeira in Portugal. And he sent it to me many years later and said, Mike, look what I found. I found this shot that we took in our apartment back then. And would you like it? And I was like, absolutely. And it's the literally... The only photograph I have, personal photograph that I have of myself, you know, people keep asking me, well, you know, the media, like, can you give us sh some shots from when you're in Scientology? I said, well, I'll give you the ones from the Scientology promotional pieces or the Scientology videos, but I don't have anything of myself. And I looked at that picture and I, I sent it to my editor and she was like, oh my God, we have to use this, <laughs> this says so much in just the picture. And I thought, hmm, I guess it probably does. You know, I look at myself and I go, yeah, there I was still pretty wide-eyed and innocent back then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And uh, there was a lot, a lot to come. A lot of water went under the bridge after that. Right. Oh, yes. And then some. I mean, I, I think it's such a challenge even though your book has so much detail in it, there's, I'm sure, a lot that you couldn't quite put in, things that are, I'm sure, still coming to you. And so it's hard to put a whole life into a book. That is the most difficult task of this process, Rachel, for sure. What do you include? What do you leave out? What is just irrelevant or a rabbit hole? Like, how do you condense this? into something that's an acceptable length for a book. I'm not going to write War and Peace. So they're looking for a certain number of words. And, you know, it was a process. And I was very fortunate because I had a wonderful editor that helped me put this book together and identify what seemed to be important. And because she had an outside perspective, it was really helpful because my view of things is terribly clouded by what seemed to have the most impact on me personally, which isn't necessarily what may have impact on a reader. I said to her many times, you're not just my editor, you're also my therapist. Because when I originally set out to write this, the first thing I did was I did like a timeline of my history and trying to get things sort of in some form that uh, was a skeleton to build on. And then I wrote like all, I, I sort of fleshed it out and filled it out. But I got to say that I probably wrote it like one would approach writing a legal brief. It was just, here's the facts. This is what happened. Then that happened. Then this happened. And then I was here and then I was there. And Kathy, my editor was like, Oh, uh, no. We need to know what you were thinking. We need to know what you were feeling. And you know, Rachel, that that is one of the things that sort of 
goes by the wayside or is sort of beaten out of you in Scientology. Emotions are not seen as positive things. They're seen as a distraction from the task at hand. And that suppression of emotion is perhaps the most difficult thing that I had to overcome in trying to write the book and satisfy what the editors were saying, look, you need, we need to hear you here. We don't need, just need an observer of the facts. You need to be telling your story and what you were thinking and why you thought that and how did this have an impact on you? And I'm like, wow, okay, this is tough. <laughs> yes. This is tough. But it was also cathartic. It really was. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, I think just needing to find out how you were feeling, having the language of emotion also, it's not something that you're raised with. And so just finding the words, kind of needing to look in a thesaurus, what's another word for this? And so I think that, you know, yeah, emotions are very elusive. They're a weakness. It's an interesting thing about being against the reactive mind as Scientology is. I've rarely met a group of people who are more reactive (laughs) than Scientologists, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Right. Like, be careful, right? You shouldn't have, if someone's not reactive, you shouldn't have to be careful about what you say to them. Correct. So already there's a problem with the equation, but... I think, yeah, the, it, there are a lot of people who come to me and ask me questions that therapists don't often get asked, which is, who am I? What am I supposed to be feeling? Is this right to feel this way? Is this correct? Is this how the rest of the population feels about this, whatever this is, and having a, a frame of reference? Yes, because the frame of reference for a Scientologist is, what does Ron say? There is only one frame of reference in Scientology, and that is Scientology. And because Hubbard proclaimed himself to be the expert on everything, I mean, Rachel, everything from how to wash windows to how to cure cancer to how to attain eternal spiritual salvation to how to not uh, react inappropriately to how to communicate to everything, like literally everything. Scientologists have this crutch that they live by. And I really believe that some of them remain there because it's a relatively easy way to go through life. You don't have to make a lot of decisions. The decisions are all made for you. This is what you're supposed to think. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. Here's how a Scientologist would approach this. This is what a Scientologist does. A good Scientologist wouldn't do this, wouldn't do that. And that is perhaps the hardest thing also to come to grips with when you leave, because all of those things now are no longer applicable. And I found it very difficult for myself to figure out, at least in the first uh, period of time, to figure out whether my view of something was based on what my view was, or was this seen through the colored lenses of what I had been taught in Scientology? Is this really the right way that I should be thinking about gays? Or is this clouded by my indoctrination from an early age that 
this is a bad thing. And it's like that about everything. It's not just one thing or one aspect of life. It's all of life. And for that reason, I think that it is probably more difficult for someone who has been a very dedicated or second generation raised in Scientology person to extricate themselves from that world than it may be for others because it's so all-encompassing. I know that that's the case with the Jehovah's Witnesses and some of these other groups too, because I have experience with them now and hear simpler stories from them. But these very high-control cult organizations, wow, they are tough to get out of. Right. And what's interesting is the conflict because you're you're needing freedom, but with freedom comes the not knowing, the losing the formula. Right. And that's very difficult. And you, I think you're right. There are a lot of people who stay because they're too afraid of not having that, that sort of automatic formula, having the answers built in, whether they're accurate or not. It just feels so good to have them. Exactly. Yeah. And and for the most part, they are not accurate. It's not even whether they're accurate or not. They're mostly just wrong and stupid and really kind of messed up, but they are easy. In some ways, it is so easy to be a cult follower because you don't have to think. It's so interesting. I wonder also about this idea. I see this a lot with people who have come out of cults. They have been made to sometimes feel superior and other times really beaten down, like they're higher or lower. They have been beaten down in the group or they have fallen from grace, which is very easy to do within a cultic group, especially with a particular leader that you're dealing with later on. But then you can still feel superior to the rest of the world. And I think coming out and meeting people eye to eye, face to face, not above and not below, not feeling down about yourself, not feeling that you're better than, I mean, I think that's also difficult just to feel that you're on an even playing field with the rest of the world. Yes, it is difficult, but you know, it's also something that I talk about in the book. It's also incredibly liberating to find out that the world isn't this horrible place where everybody is evil and mean and you're going to die and you're going to spend your life flipping burgers at McDonald's, which is a a lovely favorite saying within the Sea Org. If you leave the Sea Org, you're just going to end up getting cancer and flipping burgers at McDonald's. Like, actually, there's something wrong with flipping burgers at McDonald's. You know, like, you know, hey, it's a job. And right. Mm -hmm. in any event, This idea that the world is some sort of an evil place is ingrained so heavily. You know, I even talk about in the book, like when I was growing up in Australia and there was the the inquiry in Victoria against Scientology, and it sort of confirmed in my mind that there was a, a, a conspiracy to stop Scientology and that mankind's only hope was being prevented from getting out into the world by these evil men who were bent on, on everybody's destruction. Oh my God, you walk outside of that world and gosh, there's a lot of really nice people and 
they're very friendly and they're helpful and they have a lot of smart things to say and they have a lot of ideas about how the world works that you've never heard before. It's kind of amazing. And that's what I sort of tried to impart in that letter to my children at the beginning of the book. Like you've been raised in a world where you believe that outside the walls of Scientology is this horrendous place. And if you jump over the wall outside, you're going to be devoured by the monsters on the other side. It just isn't true. But you're not going to believe that until you've jumped over the wall. But you can't jump over the wall because people are telling you if you do, you'll die. I mean, it's like it's horrible. It is horrible. And it's so divisive and controlling. I mean, anything that's presented that is laced with fear gets under your skin more than anything else. You live in this kind of wondering, uh, what if? What if they're right? And so you don't get to test it out unless you test it out, unless you have the boldness, the courage to face it and see. Sometimes people will say to me, I don't know what to do. If I run into someone from the group, what should I say? How do I prove? You know, And sometimes I think you don't have to say anything. You just have to appear as you are, kind of happy, more relaxed. <laughs> you don't have a furrowed brow. <laughs> your shoulders aren't tight. You have a smile on your face. You're having sort of unconditional acceptance and love maybe for the first time in your life. And that shows and you can just be. And I think that speaks volumes. Yes, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, Mark Headley did that when he went to gold with a camera crew with I think it was Louis Theroux or someone. And, you know, some of his old friends came out to like stare him down. And he was like, hey, I'm doing great. I've got I've got three kids and we're doing and we're living a great life and everything's wonderful. And, you know, that was and I thought, you know, that's the smart way of dealing with these people. Someone asked me the other day, so how do you get someone out of a cult? I said, hmm, I don't have a silver bullet answer for that. There is nothing that I have ever found. But the one thing I will say is. Don't tell them that they're wrong. Don't tell them they're stupid. Don't tell them that they are uninformed, ignorant fools. If you can, find something that you can agree with with them. Like find something, like I, I say to people about Scientologists, say, you know, doesn't Ron say that you're supposed to look for yourself and think for yourself and don't listen, look, don't listen don't take things at face value. Like maybe you should apply some of that. But I, I, I don't know that I really have a any good answer. Rachel, send people to you. <laughs> Say go see a good therapist. They'll help you. <laughs> They'll help you sort your way through this mess. I'll do my best. Um, <laughs> right? I mean, I I think it is hard to know what is going to do it, and sometimes I've noticed it's the thing that I wasn't even planning on. It just sort of came out that made a difference. So you you don't know what it's going to be. But I think helping people know they have options. A lot of people stay because they think this is the only way to be safe. And finding out that's not the case is so powerful. It's so, it's so powerful. I know that that, you know, when you were talking about what to add in the book, I will sometimes tell people who help me with the podcast, 
Can you let me know what is still going to be interesting to the public? I've become so desensitized <laughs> to hearing certain <laughs> things. Sometimes people will come to me and they'll tell me their story and they think I'm not listening. It's just that I've heard it and worse and crazier and out there. And so I I kind of have this flat affect because I'm sort of waiting for the thing I haven't heard before. And for them, it's just crazy. So I think, yeah, having that frame of reference. When I first started learning about Scientology, it was because of a family member getting involved. But then I was right away harassed by them. At the very beginning, I say that as the ink was still drying on my counseling license, that was it. They were sending people in to pose as clients. I'm getting full transcripts of the sessions saying we're watching and listening. I was followed by Eugene Ingram and JJ Gaw. I remember these two guys following me to my house, leaning on my car. thinking, what is going on? I, I thought I was just helping people. And I didn't know I had walked into sort of this mafia-like kind of space. But there was this sense and I remember seeing you at conferences years ago, at the Cult Awareness Network, the former Cult Awareness Network conferences. There is this, this purposefulness, this mission where you felt like I didn't want to be at odds with anyone in Scientology. I didn't want to fight, but there was this attack being on the offense to put me on the defense. I thought, what is this about? And I remember, and I want to ask you a little bit about that, but I remember one time being at a conference and there was a young guy, like a kid, basically, walking around writing down the license plates of the people who were attending the conference. So as an intimidation thing or to find out about who had attended. So it wasn't private who was there. And I'm yelling to him and he thinks I'm fighting with him, but he's not noticing that cars are pulling out and he's almost getting hit. <laughs> and I'm thinking like I'm having this maternal instinct towards him. I'm saying, hey, and he's like, what crimes have you committed? I'm like, no, 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 just turn around, just watch out. <laughs> uh, you know, but there is this fight, right? And I'm thinking, no, honey, I just don't want you to get injured, you know, but he was on a mission and he wasn't noticing what was happening around him. So what is that about? If you can help people understand that, that sense, that militaristic mission. Well, this is something that Hubbard instilled in Scientologists, that there is only one path to saving every man, woman, and child on earth, and that is the path that Hubbard laid out, and that it is absolutely, desperately, urgently vital that the, the discoveries, which is what Hubbard always called his stuff, discoveries, and technology, to give it sort of this like uh like like cloaking it as if it's something that's been thoroughly researched and but of course he also says if you do what i tell you exactly as i tell you it works 100% of the time i mean this is the the mantra of scientology standard tech do it standardly keep scientology working don't deviate from what hubbard says but Hubbard says, I am the first person in the history of the universe to have discovered how to unlock the secrets of the universe and to make it possible for everybody to attain full spiritual freedom, salvation, and happiness. And that there are forces of evil seeking to stop that 
because those forces of evil are the people who have caused everybody to not be a perfect, happy, fulfilled spiritual being. And that those same people are still around today trying to stop us. And primarily, they are psychiatrists, as you well know, Rachel. Psychiatrists are the boogeymen of Scientology. Like every cult has to have the boogeyman on the outside that they are fighting against. And for Scientology, it is psychiatry. And now a whole bunch of other people got added on, you know, the government and the media and, you know, the CIA and the IRS and the FBI and the UK government and the AMA and blah, blah, blah. But central to the concept, the the idea in Scientology is it's psychiatry that is seeking to enslave mankind and prevent Scientology from freeing mankind. So. The idea is that this is more important, this enormously all-encompassing goal and objective of Scientology is more important than anything else. And so everything becomes subservient to that. Your family, your well-being, your personal comfort, your money, everything is secondary to achieving this goal. And Hubbard says, and every good Scientologist takes the words of Hubbard very literally to be applied very exactly, that the only way to succeed in achieving this objective of saving everybody on planet Earth is to prevent those who are seeking to stop us from accomplishing that by attacking and destroying them. And Scientology has a whole section of Hubbard technology about how you go about destroying the enemies of Scientology. And it is like a spy school, an espionage organization, one of the arms of Scientology. And this isn't just hype of, you know, Oh, here's here's this disgruntled guy that's talking about how they've got a spy organization. No, when the United States government raided Scientology in 1977 and got uh, the files that they were keeping on how they were going about destroying people, there is a wonderful book written by Tony Ortega called The Unbreakable Miss Lovely about Paulette Cooper. And she was being framed literally for bomb threats, for threats against the vice president of the United States. She was being prosecuted. They sought to get her incarcerated in a mental institution. They sought to get her to commit suicide. These are very actual, real, documented, this is what they did. And this was all pursuant to what Hubbard said is how you go about dealing with someone like Paulette Cooper. Those policies and practices are the same today. It is one of the bad things about Scientology is that nothing can change. So they can't adjust or modify their behavior because their behavior is dictated by what L. Ron Hubbard said, and he's dead, so he can't change anything. So it's continuing to this day, and they may use different methods now. You know, they they have a lot of stuff that they do on the internet rather than in person. 
and they come up with smear sites, but they also hack your emails. I mean, there was a guy who was convicted in New York of hacking me and Tony Ortega's emails and went to prison for it. And that it wasn't coincident that it was me and Tony Ortega. So, you, you know, there, we just didn't happen to be two random people that this guy happened to pick on. So it's pretty crazy how militant the mindset is of Scientology justified by this greater good, that this is for the good of the entire planet, the entire universe. There will all be thankful. The fact that one person's life got destroyed, you know, if Rachel Bernstein shrivels up and goes away and, and is cowered into silence and has an unhappy life as a result, well, that may not be the greatest thing, but it's not really anything we're worried about. It's not on our conscience because her demise resulted in our rise. So, you know, that can't be bad. Right, exactly. You know, it's very hard when people leave Scientology, they can sound very uh, paranoid and it's a shame. And I think it's really important that you're saying what you're saying and you're saying, this is real. This really happens. I mean, when I have people coming to my office wearing dark sunglasses and hats and asking to take the stairs instead of the elevator so they're not stuck in an elevator with someone who's following them. I know that that's real. And um, I'm not going to discount this as paranoid. I had people, well, years ago, break into my office, go through my client files, and you can sound paranoid, <laughs> but it really does happen. They've complained about me to my board many times. And uh, Freedom Magazine did a whole piece on me that I'd lost my License and that I was Leah Remini's therapist, which I'm not, uh, nor would I say if I were, but I'm not. Uh, and but they just sort of used her name to get me or to bring a light on me or to bring a light on her, whatever it was. We're all being used, you know, as part of this. I I think, you know, also years ago to go back to the article also that you mentioned, I still have all these issues of Time Magazine in my office, old ones that I have in a Ziploc, so they don't uh, disintegrate or yellow, but. I remember meeting with Rich Behar in New York when I was living there and he looked exhausted and afraid, was watching to see who was following us. And I just wanted to thank him. I asked to take him out to lunch. He said, okay, that'd be nice. But he he also said what he put in this article, this big Time Magazine article that people can reference online now, was just the tip of the iceberg that he really couldn't put a lot of what he had found out. And even with the tip of the iceberg, it was explosive. Absolutely. And it's funny that you mention him because I had the good fortune of meeting him also at the premiere of going, or one of the showings of going clear in New York. And he was in the audience and I, and I made a point of going over because obviously when Time Magazine came out, I was the head of the Office of Special Affairs. So a lot of the shit that got done to Rich Behar was on my watch, even if I wasn't directly involved, but it was certainly under my, my purview. And what it, it's, one, it's another one of those experiences, Rachel. He was so gentlemanly and so, um, un, you know, I'm bitter. I don't... 
I, I'm not sure that that's the right word, but he was just like, thank you so much. Uh, you know, it's really a pleasure to meet you. And I like, I'm apologizing to him. He said, it's okay. I, I understand. I like you, you don't need to try and explain to me. I just watched this film. I saw you in there. I know what you're trying to do. I appreciate it. Thank you. And it was like, wow, you know, these, these horrible suppressive persons as Scientology calls them really aren't that horrible after all, you know, yeah. Like, it's not that I hadn't realized that, but someone like Rich Behar, who was put through absolute hell, I, I think he was in deposition for like 80 days or something, something insane, like crazy, who could be as, as gracious and as, un, like, if he had spat on me and turned around and walked away, I would have gone, I get it. You know what I mean? It would not have surprised me. I, I would have been sort of, okay, I deserve that. And, you know, I hope he feels better. But he didn't, not even anywhere close. And that's the same thing with a lot of people that I dealt with. You know, Janet Wright, a lot of reporters that I had dealt with when I was in Scientology and even lawyers have been very, very gracious. And Scientology doesn't have all the answers to everything. I just want to, I just want to let you know that, Rachel. I, I know I know you've been thinking that that may be the case, but I and I probably come as a bit of a shock to you, but that just really isn't the case. <laughs> I need to go have a lie down. I just I can't handle this. <laughs> this revelation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. I mean, can you imagine though? I think about this a lot being someone like L. Ron Hubbard or David Miscavige and saying, I have the answer to everything. I mean, I wouldn't be able to say that without giggling. Like everyone would know I'm just kidding. I couldn't even get through the rest of the sentence. But to have that sense that you know all, what is so interesting that's built into the cultic system is that we can say this is the answer. We can promise you everything. And if, if it doesn't work, that's on you. We can say whatever we want at all times. Oh, Rachel, you are so right about that. And and wow, is that built into Scientology so heavily? You know, I've been interviewed a few times recently about the Masterson trial that's ongoing. And one of the things that I always bring up is this concept that is hammered into Scientology that and you will hear Scientologists say it all the time. What did you do to pull it in? And that is the expression that is the shorthand for you are responsible for everything that happens to you, everything bad that happens to you. And the reason bad things happen to you is that you have done similar bad things to someone else before and now require being punished for that. And there is a whole body of this Hubbard technology, uh, and he calls it overts and motivators, you know, committing a bad act and then having to get something back. But what it really accomplishes is twofold. One, every victim is blamed. If you get run over by a car, by a drunk driver, you are expected to go find why, when you ran someone over as a drunk driver through the auditing process. And I'm not even going to get into the whole how that happens. But 
The second part of it is if you don't get what Scientology promises you after you pay either in cash or with your life and time, they will tell you that the reason that you haven't gotten or you're in a bad way is because of something that you did that you have not yet disclosed. And that once you disclose that, everything will be fine and it will all resolve. But it keeps this just like you were saying, we can promise everything to you. When it doesn't happen, it's never our fault. It is always your fault. You failed somehow to apply the technology properly. You have some undisclosed terrible transgressions that have caused this to happen to you. It's always like that. And it even goes to, you know, when Scientology complains and says, you know, we're getting terrible, this media is, is lying about us and we're being portrayed badly in the media. If a Scientologist said came in and said that, they would say, well, what did you do to pull it in? When it happens to Scientology, they go, those evil people over there are doing shit to us. <laughs> right. right. It's opposite day, suddenly. Exactly. Right. Suddenly it's opposite. That's exactly right. It never is the problem of the organization. The organization never did anything to pull anything in, but everybody does. Every Scientologist and every person on planet Earth, that applies to. Right. And so I think it's really good for people to notice that and that it's not dissimilar from some large group awareness trainings where they will, if you say that you, something happened to you when you were young, you have to sit in the victim's row and, you know, what did you do? The whole thing. It's just this whole mind trip. And it's so wrong. The dangerous part psychologically is that it sets people up to be in abusive relationships and take responsibility for when they're hit. Well, it must be because I didn't do something on time or do it well enough. And that's built into the system, into your psyche. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I cover a lot of that in, in the book, uh, at least as well as I was able to, of rationalizing this insanity that, uh, like, after Hubbard, when Miscavige took over, things sort of descended into the Lord of the Flies world. And it's like the whole is, you know, portrayed and going clear, but not really much. I spend a good amount of time talking about what it was like in the whole because it's such a it's such a, a, an incredibly difficult thing for people to understand like so why didn't you punch someone in the face why didn't you just walk out and in your head david biscavage punching you in the face is what did i do that caused that to happen What's my evil purposes and destructive intentions that resulted in me receiving this from this great man? And that is insane. You've like lost your mind when you actually see things through that lens. And that is how Scientologists see everything. Sea Org members in particular see things that that's how I saw it. And I'm, I try to describe it in the book. Yeah, I know. I I get it. It's this is fucking nuts. What happened here is crazy and I kept going. I like I was I was not only kept going, 
I was taken out of the hole to fly to New York to do an interview with Katie Couric and then came back. How crazy is that? To the rest of the world, right. And when you're looking at it now with a more objective eye, right, doesn't make sense. In that system, that makes perfect sense. And I think we could do a whole other conversation about learning to gaslight yourself. Yes. Because there is this whole gaslighting culture, but the worst part is you learn to gaslight yourself. And it's so handicapping. Rachel, you couldn't be more accurate in that. And, you know, I've also, I talk in the book some length about this e-meter in Scientology because the e-meter is like a gaslight machine. The e-meter is a stroke of genius, evil genius on the part of Hubbard because Scientologists are led to believe and every Scientologist believes the e-meter does not lie. The e-meter always tells the truth. I mean, it is a mechanical device and it is measuring your thoughts and emotions and reactions and it always measures them and it always tells the truth. But there's another piece that it measures below your consciousness at a level below your consciousness. So if you are sitting there holding the e-meter and going through Scientology counseling, if they say, what harmful acts have you committed against David Miscavige? And you're sitting there going, I don't know. I don't think anything. Okay, what was that? Something read on the meter. What was it? Tell me what your thought is. What do you? What were you thinking when I said that? What were you thinking? Ah, I wasn't really thinking anything. No, no, no. It's reading on the meter. I want to know what your thought was. So you have to come up with a thought. Okay. So tell me more about that thought. And you are guided and directed on what you are supposed to think. And you believe because the e-meter is being used that it's real. And this is where you get into the fantasy world of Scientology. And, you know, even the OT3 story, like, I think every person, when they get to that level in Scientology, opens that up and sees Hubbard's flowing handwriting about Xenu and hydrogen bombs and blah, 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 and goes, wow, this is pretty weird. But they know what they don't say it out loud. They just kind of think to themselves and they go, and the the person who's standing over them, watching them read it to supervise them, will say, You don't have to believe it. What does the e-meter say? And you then sit down on an e-meter and you're reading this crazy stuff and the e-meter's reacting. Well, the e-meter could be reacting because it's crazy shit. But in the mind of a Scientologist, it's see, that proves that this is true. And so you convince yourself that this stuff is true. Just like you said, it's gaslighting. And when you get to the higher levels of Scientology and you start using the e-meter on yourself, which is how you conduct the OT levels, the operating Thetan levels at the top end, you're using the e-meter, reading the e-meter while you're thinking thoughts and confirming, oh, yes, it must be this. Oh, yes, it must be that. This is a, a brilliant level of self-gaslighting because it, it adds this, this scientific device to the process that proves that it's all true, that proves it's, it's like 
this is some top level shit. And it is like when you're saying an evil kind of genius mastermind to say that something is below your consciousness that makes you totally dependent on the other person to guide you to the next revelation or insight because you now have been told you're not going to come to it on your own because it's below your consciousness. So you now give that over to the other person to define something for you. What's also interesting in those moments, and I guess I want people who are listening, who are in Scientology, who are not, whatever it is. There's not many people in Scientology listening to this, Rachel. I just want to give you a tip about that. I know. I know. There are some people I know who are considering leaving, who sometimes will tell me that they listen to my podcast. They have to sneak off somewhere in a parking garage or something, but then some have actually then felt like they needed to reveal that they did that in their next auditing session. And then they go to the RPF. Anyway, back to this idea of the social piece. You also in that moment want to say the thing that's going to please the other person. Absolutely. If they seem like, oh, no, 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 you know, you're not getting, no, I don't think that's right. And suddenly they seem excited and happy and you're doing it the right way. I think then you get disengaged from what you're saying because you're reading the other person and you want to be a good member. Yes. I mean, confirmation bias is an enormously important aspect of everything in Scientology. You know, the, the, the level of refinement of the brainwashing techniques in Scientology is pretty sophisticated. Like, when you complete anything inside any course or auditing or anything that you process that you're going through in Scientology, you are required to write a success story. And you're required to present to the world your affirmation that this was wonderful and it was exactly what I was promised and more. And it was amazing. And I've never felt so good. And all the people around you are uh, standing there clapping and they're all telling you the same thing after they've done that. And they don't believe it either, but they know that that's what they need to say. And everybody else telling them that that's what they got. It's like this hive mind that is built around the idea that if you don't achieve what Hubbard says you are going to achieve in whatever this part of Scientology is, again, that's because there's something terribly wrong with you. There, You are equivalent of a leper. You are what is called no case gain. You are a person who will not respond to Scientology. You do not make gains in Scientology. And that is the absolute bottom of the barrel. That is worse than being a suppressive person. That is no hope for your future because there is no way that you can recover from the dire circumstances that you have found yourself in because you can't even respond to this brilliant technology to dig you out of the trap that you're in. This is some some really heavy stuff. It is really heavy stuff. I've also always been fascinated, and I know we're coming close to the end of our time, so I want to make sure that we cover a couple more things. Rachel, I absolutely will come back. Oh, great. I thoroughly enjoy talking to you, and I will happily 
come back and we can talk about other subjects. Yeah. Good. Oh, that's wonderful. Because yeah, there's so much more to cover about this, but also just what we learn about groups and the influence and, and the human mind and its vulnerabilities and what people need to know in order to leave something like this and have the courage to do it and what the world is like and what it can provide. There's so much to talk about. What I'm I'm wondering too is over the years, because when you're not in it, you have this distance you can see the transparency, like the bridge to total freedom, just the wording. So I remember years ago hearing on a cassette tape, I know I'm dating myself by saying that, but I remember hearing these quotes in Elrond's voice, where if you, you know, you want to enslave people, basically I'm paraphrasing, you want to enslave people, you need to promise them total freedom. Then suddenly there's this bridge to total freedom within the group. I mean, it can't be more obvious. You just even using the exact same wording about what enslaves people. Now there is that track. And so I'm just wondering about that. The fact that it was so, it's so blatant, but he's still got away with it. That fascinates me. Well, it is fascinating. And I think that the answer to that, Rachel, is of course, none of it is logical. Because it, by definition, it can't be because it's bullshit. But if you promise something to people and you promise them something that is ultimately unattainable in this life, you know, you, you can't go to heaven in this life. You can't become uh, an, an operating Thetan at full cause of a matter, energy, space, and time in this life either. You can't uh, operate outside of your body, much as uh, despite the fact that Hubbard said that that was possible. But all these promises are things that drive people to accept almost anything as long as they believe that by accepting it, it is going to help them attain what this hoped-for carrot is that is dangled in front of them. And I don't think that that is even limited to religions or self-help groups. I think it is apparent in all parts of society that if you tell people you're going to give them X, Y, and Z, and they really want it, it doesn't matter how illogical, contradictory, uh, blatant it is, you can still get a whole bunch of people to buy into it. I mean, even down to selling iPhones. I mean, the idea that this is the greatest thing and, you know, if you have one of these, you're a cool person and blah, 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 blah. So people line up to pay $900 for a, or $1,000 for the latest iPhone before everybody else gets it. Like, that's insane. Why? Like, it's not, you're not actually going to be able to make better phone calls. You may be able to take slightly better pictures, but nobody takes that great pictures anyway. So like, what's the point? But somehow people will do stuff if they believe that there is some that if they are offered something that they want and when you get to offering people freedom and happiness and health and the ability to control your emotions 
you are in a realm that transcends almost any logic, any discomfort, any willingness to to give up things that are important to you. You know, I I think that the definition of, of having power over someone is being able to persuade them or get them to agree to do things that are not in their self-interest. And that's exactly what happens. The hope trumps your self-interest, your sense, your logic, your willingness to look, your willingness to be have critical thought. It's like that is a an all-powerful motivating factor. And boy, Scientology has got that. I mean. Christianity has heaven and, you know, there's Valhalla and there's the the 40 virgins and all that sort of stuff. But Scientology tells you, you can be in complete and utter control of your life, this life and all future lives if you just do what we tell you and apply Scientology technology. And that's pretty, that's a pretty big promise. It's a pretty big promise with a conflict, a contradiction built into it, because you can be in charge of your whole life if you do everything we tell you to do. <laughs> I know. I mean, <laughs> Scientology Scientology had an ad campaign one time that was, think for yourself. Uh-huh. Like, uh, <laughs> no, you, that, that is the exact opposite of right. what Scientology is. Right. But. Yeah. You pitch it and that's something that people want and they go, mm, yeah, that's good. Sounds good to me. I want to get in. I want some of that shit. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's entirely appealing, right? Absolutely. But it's a drug, right? Cause it, it actually connects with the same parts of the brain as sort of this addictive part of, of a lot of things, drugs, alcohol. I'm wondering just as we're finishing up, you know, I'm so happy to see your happiness. I'm so happy to see, you know, you having this different sense of life, being relaxed, being a a family man and healing in a lot of ways, the loss, even though I don't think that ever gets fully healed. But I'm sure with all of your awareness and what you've learned and what you want to be able to provide for your other children now, it guides you in how you parent. And what you want to make sure they can do for themselves in their life and think. So I'm just wondering how it has sort of helped guide you into the kind of father you want to be now. Well, that's a great question. I think that there are a couple of things that are really, I feel, are very important. One, I am a, a, a firm, firm believer that unconditional love is what family consists of and that there is no unconditional love in Scientology. It's all conditioned on you being in good standing in Scientology and being a good Scientologist. The minute you are not, your family, even your siblings, your parents, your children, will you will be dead to them. And so therefore, that is not unconditional love. I think also that the idea that you get to make decisions based on what you believe is right and wrong is something that I try to teach my boys as much as I can, that you've got to look at what 
uh, the consequences of what you do and decide on whether it's right or wrong based on how does it affect other people, not just how does it affect you. I also think, like Jack, my 10-year-old now, one time when we were in Los Angeles, we were up in the Hollywood Hills and we're driving through and there was one of those little tiny roads in the hills and there was a garbage truck. And I said, oh, Jack, look at this, because we're stuck behind the garbage truck. I said, this got to be one of the worst jobs in the world, trying to navigate a garbage truck through the Hollywood Hills. It's like, and he said, yeah, dad, but it's not as bad as being in the seal. Uh. And I went, okay. So I have accomplished something without ever saying anything, really, you know, you may not, you must not. I I really try and avoid uh, this idea that I can instill by you're not allowed to. I would rather instill by education and get, you know, that life choices being made through education rather than dicta, because that's how I was raised and I didn't like it. I, you know, I look back and I don't like that aspect of my life. But Rachel, uh, one thing I do want to say, I really want people to understand, and I hope that it is, my book is helpful to people other than people who are just been in Scientology, or even just people who've been in cults. I want people to realize that it's possible to change your life, whether it's a bad relationship, a rotten job, uh, whatever it is, it is always possible. I am an example of someone who, at 52 years old, started an entirely new life. I have a wonderful life now. I am very happy. I have a lovely wife. I have two boys that I am raising. It's amazing, but it seemed impossible. And I think a lot of people probably looked at me and went, that guy's never going to leave. He's never going to get out of that place that he is in. And I did. And I just hope that it speaks to a broader audience than people just kind of interested in cults. Right. I love the message of that it's never too late. It's a very fortifying, hopeful message, and it's true. I work with people who come to me who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, even 80s, and they're needing to leave something they were raised in or that they got involved in 40, 50 years ago, and they realize suddenly it isn't what they thought, and their life never became what it was promised. And they want out, and they don't know how to start anew, but they can. And then I see them a year down the road and they seem happy and engaged with the world and then still not as afraid of it as they were made to feel and happy to be a part of it. So I love that message. It's really wonderful. And I and I love too that you get to have this experience with your children that is, I'm sure, filled with photos. Yes. Right? You can see some of them behind me. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I mean, having one picture just shows about sort of the disengagement from sentimentality, from knowing and enjoying those moments, those special moments. And the fact that you are 
photographing them, filming them, whatever else, so that your kids have that connection to their history is really important and that you get to have that too. So thank you. Thank you for your time. I will take you up on your offer to continue the conversation. It's always good to talk to you. And I'm so happy that your book is going to be reaching so many people. Thank you so much, Rachel. I'll be back. Okay. All right. In the immortal words of Arnold Schwarzenegger. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Thank you so much, Mike. One more thing before you go. It was really good to talk to Mike. And it sounds like we're going to be talking again. It is nice to be able to see him in this part of his life. I saw him a lot before when things were very different, where he needed to be very different, where his interactions with me and with others were very different. And it's an interesting field I'm in where there are people in the past who for good reasons at the time, or at least what they thought were very valid and important reasons at the time, were quite militaristic and aggressive on the offense, mean, intimidating, but all for the greater good, I suppose, as it was laid out for them. And so they felt very driven to be that way. And I know it is not an easy thing to come to terms with that. It's not an easy thing to get to the other side and look back. There are people who have come to see me in my office who have apologized because it was their job to intimidate me or it was their job to go after other clients of mine who had recently left Scientology or other groups and to follow them, to harass them, to sometimes even follow them to my office. And now these people are out and they realize what they were set up to do and how, again, they felt vindicated and they felt even enthusiastic and honored by having this task that felt so ultimately important. But now, in retrospect, are really wondering what it was all about and what good it did the world at all. When Mike talks to me, I hear so many things that I want to be able to talk to him more about and talk to you about. But every once in a while, as you know from listening to this podcast, if you'd listened to it before, there are things that sometimes people say to me that really go right through me, that really tug on my heart, that stay with me. And one of the things that Mike talked about when I mentioned the picture of him on the cover of his new book was he said, as you heard, that's the only picture he had or that anyone had of him when he was younger. I want to talk a little bit about that because that has stayed with me. Do you know how paintings from many years ago, kind of the Renaissance and before, where you see children depicted as adults, kind of miniature adults, with serious looks on their faces, but they're not depicted as children. They have kind of adult features, just smaller size. And 
as we know, in the not-too-distant past, and still it is true in some countries, there are and were no child labor laws, child protection laws. Children were working in mines, still are in some places. They were kind of being used as resources, just like adults, being used as chimney sweeps and being used in factories. It is actually no different than it is within a cult, within most cults. It's an incredibly difficult life for children to be raised in an environment where there is very little awareness of child development, either emotional or physical or medical. Children are often separated from adults, from their parents, and those bonds are broken, or at least the closeness doesn't get to be as close, as nurturing as it could be in life outside. This is really how it is for many people raised in a cult. Most of the people I talk to, I'd say a good 85%, talk about how they were raised in a children's room or they were sent away or they were cared for by other people, not their parents, where they might have only been able to see their parents for a few hours a week. If they were sick, they couldn't go to be with their parents. If they were having nightmares, still. I know in listening to Claire Headley a few months ago, you heard her talk about only being able to see her mother for a few hours a week and then not at all for a period of time. And so this is often how it is. Kids don't really get to be kids. And it's true also then that parents don't really get to be parents unless they really fight for it or unless the cult allows that. Kids are also expected to do the work of adults and take on the pressure of saving the world and the guilt of not doing enough every day, just like the adults. There isn't the opportunity for many kids to play, to have playtime. And playtime is essential. Playtime is the time that creativity is born, that the brain makes connections between things. You get to develop your individual thoughts and likes, find out about your talents. There also isn't the ability to rest because you have to keep working for the cause, proving yourself. Or, by association, proving your family worthy of staying there or of having their elevated position there, potentially. There's also no room for feelings, as Mike talked about, or awareness of feelings. Or the fact that kids have feelings and should be attended to. When they learn that people care about their feelings, they learn to care about their own feelings, and they also learn to care about other people's. All kids have nightmares. But if you learn that it's a weakness to be scared or to even not feel well, to have a cold, then you have people around you who are not in a position to show you compassion. And so you don't get what you need in that moment to know that all of that matters to other people. Kids also many times are kept from getting proper education. And then they need to find some way of getting education for themselves later on when they get out into the world. And they've also rarely been around students, people who are asking questions, people who know it's okay to disagree with what they're being taught, people who are getting the idea of critical thinking, even though in the world outside still, I think it should be taught 
much more often than it is at a much younger age than it is, to be honest. What's true is also that there are a lot of people raised in cults who don't know about what it means to be mistreated. They might be getting mistreated by their religious leader, by the person in charge, by their caregiver at the moment, by their teacher, who might be rude to them or cruel. And you learn that you just need to take it. And I say all this in connection to Mike talking about the fact that this picture on the cover of his book was the only picture of him when he was younger. So much of what I just said is tied in with that. It says so much about a lack of sentimentality. It says so much about a lack of family time and an importance placed on family moments in so many cultic groups. And sometimes it's not the whole cultic group that feels that way, but it could be the person who's running the center that you happen to belong in, wherever it is in the world. And that there are going to be family moments that are going to be potentially joyful that you might not be having. And they might not actually be seen as important within a cult. But those moments are important if they're possible. It's so important to be able to look back on those times. But if there are no pictures, no video, it says something about how that time doesn't really matter and doesn't need to be remembered. But it does. People who say that they have dealt with losing their photos or videos in a fire or a flood are very sad about it, sometimes more sad about that than losing other things. But they also know, as a lot of people say when they try to come to terms with having lost those things, that they still have the fun times and the memories indelibly marked in their minds. But for a lot of people who didn't have that and also don't have a video or photographic memory of it, or record of it, those moments aren't necessarily etched in their mind. Other moments are, usually moments of working hard to please the person in charge, prove something about yourself, do the extra work, spend the extra time, make the sacrifice. But what's so interesting about what you get to do when you have your freedom is that you get to put a value on enjoying yourself, on actually being able to take care of that child inside of you even as an adult, and have fun just for the sake of fun. And if you decide to have children, then it is important, as a lot of people I have worked with have done, that they provide their children with what they didn't get, with fun just for the sake of fun, with photos and with videos. And for people who decide to not have children, they can still have that with friends or with their friends' children with being a fun aunt or uncle. But if you don't have memories to look back on that are good, make memories now. It really is never too late to start making the kind of memories you want to be able to remember and look back on fondly in the future. I am so happy that Mike gets to do that now for himself, for his family, for the people around him. And I hope the same for you. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrination podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at 
underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.